Good morning, everybody. Turn with me to John chapter 6, verse 36. If you can, please stand when you get that. John chapter 6, verse 36. Jesus speaking says, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all that he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. For that is the hope of every Christian in this room and every Christian in this world, that there will come a day, Lord, if you tarry, that you will raise us up at that last day. Pray you take your word today, Lord, that you would use it to penetrate hearts, starting with mine. Change us, O oh God, from what we were before we came in here. We ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I think I am echoing a little bit. That wasn't part of the sermon. I was honored this past week to do the funeral of the matriarch of our family, Kathleen Parcell. And I can tell you, it's so much easier doing a funeral when you are certain that the deceased is now in the presence of the Lord. It reminded me again of the importance of the resurrection for those who know Christ and the hopelessness for those who do not. The publicist for the late author and debater Christopher Hitchens asked Christian author Larry Taunton to arrange a series of debates between Hitchens, who was an outspoken militant atheist, and Christian thinkers. Hitchens wrote books with titles like, Is Christianity Good for the World? Another one was called, God is Not Great, and how religion poisons everything. But over the years, Hitchens and Taunton developed an unlikely friendship. Hitchens stayed in Taunton's home, and prior to Hitchens' death from cancer, the two men took a long road trip across from America. Here's how Taunton describes what happened on one of those trips. He writes, my mind goes back to Shenandoah. The skies are clear. The autumn leaves are translucent in the early afternoon sun. And the road ahead of us is open. In a clear, strong voice, Christopher is reading from the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. Reaching the 25th verse, his face lights up with recognition. He stops. I know this one too, he says but I did not recall the connection with the resurrection of Lazarus. It's a great verse, I add, since we have reached a defining moment. Yes, Dickens thought so, Christopher says. And then taking his reading glasses off, he turns to me and asks, Do you believe us thou this, Larry Taunton? His sarcasm is evident, but it lacks its customary force. I replied, I do, but you already knew that I did. The question is, do you believe us thou this, Christopher Hitchens? As if searching for a clever wisecrack, he hesitates and speaks with unexpected transparency and says, I'll admit that it's not without appeal to a dying man. And here we see the glimpse of the grace of God. 
For although Hitchens had blasphemed God his entire life, even at the end, the door to heaven was still open if only he would have repented and walked through. Because if he would have, this could have been the verse that was put on his tombstone. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not drive out. Sadly, we're given no indication that he did. And that is what we'll be spending our time on this morning. Look at verse 36 with me. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. John's approach in his gospel was to record Jesus' miracles briefly, matter-of-factly, and without fanfare, explanation, or defense. For example, the apostle describes the astonishing miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 in these simple, straightforward, unpretentious terms. He says, Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed them to who were seated, likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. John describes Jesus' equally astounding miracle of walking on the water in correspondingly modest terms when he wrote, Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. It is almost as if the apostle hurries through the accounts of Christ's miracles just to get to his words. And while his miracles reveal his divine power, it is Christ's words that correctly define who he is. Jesus is no mere wonder worker. He is the Son of God and the Messiah. His miracles authenticate him and his message as coming from God. But as we learned last week, signs and wonders alone are not enough to warrant salvation. He will now tell them the main reason for all the miracles, and it is this, to offer salvation to all mankind. But he, of course, knows that not everyone is going to believe. Jesus continues his discourse by letting the crowd know that though they have seen him, they still do not believe that he is who he says that he is. And the really sad thing is, they still think, that they're okay. That's the true danger of living in sin, by the way. Sin has the ability to blind us to its eventual and inevitable consequences. You could ask Samson at the end of his life. In his final days, we see that first he was blinded and then bound and then left to grind like an animal. His life is a snapshot of the eventual consequences of sin. For it still works the same way for us this morning. First, sin will blind us to its true destructiveness. Then it will bind us as we get addicted or attached until finally it grinds all the joy and purpose out of our lives. That's easy to remember. Sin blinds, binds, and grinds. Hebrews 11:24 really highlights this truth. It reads, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a season. 
I love the honesty of the Bible. It tells us the truth about all things, even the pleasure of sin. Please note, it doesn't say that its sin is not pleasurable because for a time it is. That's why there is no commandment that says, thou shalt not eat chocolate tofu cake. Nobody wants to do that. And if you do want to do that, please see me for counseling. So sin is fun, but it's only a passing pleasure. It's a lot lot like smoking crack. I'm told that for a few minutes or even hours, there is euphoric pleasure, but it's only a passing pleasure. And in the end, you're living on the street, emaciated, and with your teeth rotting out of your head. A passage in Deuteronomy 28 has always stuck out to me as the perfect description of a life lived apart from God. And explaining to Israel the consequences of disobedience, listen to what the Lord says. And among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and anguish of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. Now listen to this. In the morning you will say, Oh, that it were evening. And in the evening you will say, Oh, that it were morning. Because of the fear which terrifies your heart and because of the sight that your eyes see. I don't know if you've ever been in a place like that. I have. For a time in my life, I was not walking in the light. And my life was miserable and dark with no hope on the horizon. And yet here Jesus offers hope to all mankind. And that includes you and me. But our enemy doesn't want us to believe that. As one commentator put it, if a person is of more than average intelligence, he tends to think that Christ is only for the dull. If he is dull, he tends to think that Christ is only for the intelligent. If he is sophisticated, he thinks that Jesus is only for the common people, and so on. But Jesus is for all. He is for you. He is the savior of the world, and that includes the peasant as well as the king on his throne. Jesus Christ is great and glorious enough that you will never exhaust him either in this life nor in eternity. He has what you need. What is more, he knows you and he knows how to meet that need. So he is telling them and us, there is something greater than your career your money, and your clothes, and that is eternity. The Bible says, all flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because of that truth, the state of our souls should be the things that matters to us the most. This section contains Jesus' explanation of the process 
of personal salvation. These are among the most profound words he ever spoke, and we cannot hope to plumb their depths completely. He explained that salvation involves both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. In this account, we're going to see the Father gives men and women to the Son, but these men and women still must come to him, that is, believe on him. Trying to reconcile the seemingly irreconcilable truth of God's election and human free will has baffled the best of theologians for over 2,000 years. I'm about to fix all that this morning. This is why you come to Calvary Chapel. I'm just joking. I'm in the same boat as you are with this. I do have a couple things from guys a lot smarter than me, though, that may help us through. One theologian used the following illustrations of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. He writes, I liken them to two ropes going through two holes in the ceiling and over a pulley above. If I wish to support myself by them, I must cling to both. If I cling only to one and not the other, I go down. I read the many teachings of the Bible regarding God's election, predestination, is chosen, and so on. I read also the many teachings regarding whosoever will may come and urging people to exercise responsibility as human beings. These seeming contradictions cannot be reconciled by the puny human mind. He finishes by saying, with childlike faith, I cling to both ropes, fully confident that in eternity, I will see that both strands of truth are, after all, one piece. Here's another attempt to reconcile these two things. In the knowledge of the holy, A.W. Tozer writes, An ocean liner leaves New York bound for Liverpool. Its destination has been determined by proper authorities. Nothing can change it. This is at least a faint picture of God's sovereignty. On board the liner are scores of passengers. They are not in chains, neither are their activities determined to them by decree. They are completely free to move about as they will. They eat, sleep, play, lounge about on the deck, read, and talk as they please. But all the while, the great liner is carrying them steadily onward towards a predetermined port. Both freedom and sovereignty are present here, and they do not contradict. So it is, I believe, with man's freedom and the sovereignty of God. The mighty ship of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. Those are both pretty helpful, I thought, but I realize there is still some mystery, and I'm okay with that. In his reply to their impulsive request, Jesus used the two key words that often appear in the sermon, and they are come and believe. To come to Jesus means to believe on him, and to believe on him means to come to him. Believing is not merely an intellectual thing given mental assent to some doctrine. It means to come to Christ and yield yourself to him. At the close of his sermon, Jesus will illustrate coming and believing by comparing that with eating and drinking. To come to Christ and believe on him means to receive him just as you would receive food and drink. Now, from our human and limited perspective, we cannot see how divine sovereignty and human responsibility can work together. 
But from God's perspective, there is no conflict. When a church member asked Charles Spurgeon how he reconciled these two things, he replied, I never try to reconcile friends. Look at verse 38 with me. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up the last day. Jesus encapsulates his reason for coming to earth in verse 38, where he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. At the end of his life, Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. So that meant it was a success. But by human standards, his ministry at that point would have been judged an abysmal failure. And therein lies a lesson for all of us. In doing God's will and being in his eyes successful, Sometimes we can see little or no evidence of that while we are down here. And the reason is, we are not judged by results. As we often have no power really to change anyone or anything. That is all in God's hands. We are not called to be successful. We are called to be faithful. But the paradox is, if we are faithful, then in reality, we are successful in the eyes of the Lord. And so we can say that doing God's will, faithfully, zealously, despite the absence of tangible rewards, is a worthy goal and a colossal success in itself. I love verse 39. For in it we are promised that if we are truly converted... Our salvation is secure. Martin Luther saw this clearly and wrote, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. He will not only refrain from expelling and rejecting anyone, but he is also resolved to keep them with him and prevent anyone else from taking them from him. Also love F.B. Meyer here. He writes, is it possible for a limb to be torn from the mystical body of Christ? For a jewel to be snatched from out of his crown? For a sheep to be devoured from his flock? Are there any unfinished pictures in God's gallery? Any incomplete statues in his workshop? Does God begin a work in the soul and leave it incomplete and unperfected? I cannot believe it. So what am I telling us this morning? Whoever you are, and however you may have come, if you have come to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this truth is for you. If you have truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this verse is Jesus' own statement of the truth that you will never be lost. He will keep you. You can know that you will be in heaven one day as certain as you can know that Jesus himself will be there. I'm going to try to make that even more clear. Some people come to Jesus boldly. They hear the gospel and immediately everything just falls into place. 
They believe it, and they are certain of their salvation in that moment as they will be 40 years later. But others come slowly and with many misgivings. They are constitutionally or by nature cautious and unstable. They're like butterflies in the garden that flit from flower to flower without settling down on any of them. In business, they go from job to job. In Christian circles, they go from church to church. They're never quite sure of their salvation. If you ask whether they have believed in Jesus as their Savior, they reply that they have, but they're not sure they have believed enough. Are people like that kept by God? Yes, they are. They are as much in his perfect care as the one who comes boldly and completely at the beginning. Maybe you're thinking, but suppose I would get to the point where I blow it and I deny him. May I be bold enough to answer that if you are saved, Jesus will keep you even then. Do you need an example? Take Peter. Peter lived with Jesus for three years, but at the time of his arrest and crucifixion, Peter denied the Lord with oaths and cursings. Did Jesus forsake Peter? No. Peter was far from the Lord in that moment, it is true. But the Lord was never far from Peter. So we read that Jesus turned and looked on Peter and then later appeared to him personally and recommissioned him to service. This doctrine of the keeping power of God is for every Christian. It is for you, whoever you may be, however you may have come, this is the love of God. How wonderful to know that nothing can separate us from such love. There are things that would try. Paul lists three possible causes of separation from God's love in Romans 8, but then he dismisses them all. Let's go through them. First, there is sin. An honest Christian knows that although he is justified by God, he still occasionally sins. Such persons worry when they look at the sin that can cling all too closely to the flesh. Well, what of sin, they say? We are told in verse 34, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, Rebbe was raised, who, has, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. We are told that Christ has died for sins past tense, and thus, in God's sight, our sin is gone forever. Suppose someone should accuse us. God is the judge, Paul answers. The Christian has been acquitted before the bench of the highest court of all, and no one is authorized to reopen that case. The next verse in Romans 8 asks, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Or tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or per peril, or sword. Second, Paul speaks now of physical suffering. 
And not only external suffering, such as tribulation, famine, nakedness, peril, and the sword, but internal suffering also. That anguish of the soul that is often known only by the person who is being afflicted. We read, Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It is in such suffering that we can be aware of the sustaining love of God. All the words referring to this suffering are interesting. But the word tribulation has a particularly vivid mental picture associated with it. In the Greek language, the word that is translated tribulation originally meant pressure, such as the pressure of a hand upon a table or the pressure of a wind against a cell and so on. But in time it came to mean pressure that was oppressive or burdensome. At this stage, the verb meant to afflict or to harass, and the noun came to denote affliction, distress, or opposition. In the Latin language from where we get our English word tribulation, the word referred to an instrument for threshing grain. This was done by beating the wheat from the chaff. Thus, when the word was applied to the calamities of this life, it referred to their destructive capabilities. We may know such tribulation also. Sometimes it's the physical oppression of, the, of those who are persecuted for their faith. At other times, the pressure is mental, resulting from the ridicule from the tensions of our fast-paced society. Whatever it is, however, we are to know that it cannot separate us from the love of God. The third potential cause of separation from Christ's love is the existence of supernatural powers. The ending verses of Romans gives us this confidence. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who has loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other, nor height, nor debt, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Paul says that even these cannot affect a separation. And by the way, this was not just an idle thought for Paul, for he knew the extent of spiritual wickedness in this world and had wrestled against it himself. Moreover, he knew that this was the ultimate dimension of the struggle inherent in the Christian life. To the Ephesians he wrote, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly realms. But spiritual forces cannot be victorious over us. Colossians 2.15 tells us that Christ, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Can we be separated from God's love through the present or things to come? No, not by these things either. For God has chosen us in Christ before the beginning of the world. And we will see and we will be with him in glory long after time has ceased to have any meaning. He assured them that anyone who came to him would never be lost. 
but they would be raised on that last day. And even death cannot rob us of salvation. We are to be encouraged by these, the reality of these things in our lives. I once read the story of a little boy who went into a bank with just one penny to open the account. You can tell this is an old story. He went up to the teller and said, Please, sir, I would like to deposit a penny in your bank. With a serious expression, the teller took the penny and wrote the boy's name out on a bank book and handed it to the boy. And the boy went off. A little while later, the boy came back and stood there looking up at the teller. Yes, what is it, young fellow? The man asked. Please, sir. Every time he says, please, sir, I feel like I've been transported back to a Charles Dickens novel. But anyway, the boy said, I would just like to see if my penny is still in the bank. The teller hooked up the penny where the boy could see it. The boy smiled and walked away satisfied. It is our privilege to do that with God. He is not made weary with our honest questions. So if the time comes, as it does to many Christians, when we begin to doubt the reality of spiritual things and our security, God has arranged it so we can come to him and say, please, Lord, I would just like to see whether the spiritual deposits that I have placed with you are still in the bank. If we ask him, God will give us that assurance. That is why Paul can write in the letter to the Philippians mentioning just one of our dividends. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I would be negligent as a pastor if I didn't ask you, where does it stand with you this morning? Do you have faith in a God who is able to do all that he has promised, able to save and able to keep you from falling? Or are you uncertain and unstable? There is much that will make you unstable if you look first into the world instead of to God. Learn instead to look to God first, to that great God who is able to guard all of your spiritual deposits. And then we can echo the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 1.12, where he can confidently boast. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that last day. We'll come back next week as we continue to learn the Bible together.